Hi, patrons. It's Rose here with a bonus podcast episode, um, as promised. So this is mostly going to be my interview with Angela Saini, who is the author of Superior, The Return of Race Science, which was the Flash Forward Book Club book for June, which is last month. Um, I talked to her last week uh, all about her book. And so most of what this bonus podcast episode is going to be is that interview. Um, first, before we get to that, I want to say hello to all the new patrons who are listening to this. Um, Last month, I did a little promotion where if you sign up to be a patron um, between, I think it was uh, May 14th and June 30th, uh, you got a prize in the mail. And some of you, many of you may be new to this bonus podcast. So um, these come out with every episode of the show, of every main episode of Flash Forward. You'll get one of these. It'll be me talking off script, which I don't generally do very often and which always makes me somewhat nervous and I'm uh, not as practiced at as talking with a script. I spend a lot of time writing the scripts for Flash Forward, so ad-libbing. Uh, into this microphone for these bonus podcasts is somewhat stressful, but I think it's a good skill for me to be learning. So um, we're all in this together. Um, and so you're going to get these every time there is a regular episode of Flash Forward. And then also um, once a month, there will be an episode like this one, which is the interview with whoever's the author of the book club book for that month. So, um, so far we are, I think, four for four or five for five, maybe on interviews with um the authors of the books for the book club. I know that for the next month, the book is Nigerians in Space by Deji Bryce Olukoten, and he's agreed to do interviews. That'll be next month. After this interview that you're going to hear, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about updates to this bonus podcast, a couple of small changes I'm making that longtime bonus podcast listeners may notice. They're not very big, but little things. Um, and then I'm also going to uh, discuss just some like behind the scenes updates, what's going on with the show. And at the end of every bonus episode, I tell you a little secret. So um, stay tuned for that. So first, let's just go right to my interview with Angela. So Angela is the author of Superior, The Return of Race Science, like I mentioned. She's also the author of another book before that called Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong and the New Research That's Rewriting the Story, which I also very much recommend. Um, they are kind of like two peas in a pod, these two books. They're kind of both about the assumptions that people make about um, marginalized groups, women, people of color, and the ways that science is used in those assumptions um, and sort of how science has gotten both things wrong throughout history. So they're kind of good books to read in tandem. I recommend them both. Um, and so we are, her and I are going to discuss this book. Um, unlike with fiction, where I always have to sort of say like there are spoilers in these sort of interviews with the authors, um, spoilers aren't really a thing, I guess, as much in the nonfiction uh, side of things, but we are going to talk about the book. So if I guess you want to be surprised by anything in the book, uh, maybe don't listen to this, but um, we do talk about race uh, and racism in the book and harassment and things that have happened to Angela and things that are, she talks about in the book. So if you don't want to hear sort of an extended discussion of racism and scientific racism uh, right now, maybe skip this for now um, and come back to it later. Um, and uh, with that, I will take you to my interview with Angela, and I will talk to you again on the other side of that interview. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Angela, and for obviously writing this book that we read. Um, it was very intense, probably the most intense book, I think, that we've read so far <laughs> in the book club, um, but um, in, in a good way. Uh, it, it was really fascinating and kind of, I didn't know a lot of the stuff that's, that's in the book, so it was really interesting. Um, and thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. You're very welcome. I'm happy to be here. Um, so I'll start with the sort of um, obvious question that you've probably been asked a lot, but w why write this book? Like what, in, what made you want to write this book? 
Um, well, it's a book I've wanted to write for a long time. One of the reasons that I became a journalist in the first place is um, that I became involved in the anti-racism movement when I was at university. It was a big issue for me, especially as an ethnic minority living in this country at the time that I, that I was growing up. And um, if I hadn't done that, if I hadn't got involved in the student politics, I wouldn't have started writing for the student press and I wouldn't have become a journalist. Um, so these are thoughts and ideas that have been ticking over in my head for decades. Um, I've thought very carefully about them for a long time and waited really for the right moment to get them all down. And after Inferior was published, I had the opportunity to do that. So I was very grateful for that. Yeah, I'm curious because, you know, your your last book is somewhat in dialogue with this book, right? In that mm -hmm. it's kind of about similar ideas of how science can be used or misused to kind of marginalize a group of people. Um, I, you mentioned you've been waiting kind of for the right moment. What made you think that it was the right moment? You know, you started with Inferior, but what, what made you, was there an event where you were like, all right, now's the time? Or was it that that book, you know, was done and you were on to the next? Or like, was there a specific thing? Um, I think there was a number of things. Um, one was the politics of the time. So Inferior, when I started writing Inferior, it was actually quite a hard sell because um, nobody thought that we needed another book on gender and sex differences. There have been quite a few in the past. Um, and then while I was writing, Trump got elected and global politics just seemed to undergo this big shift and um, towards the right and everything changed and after Inferior was published things have only gone further and further to the right Brexit is happening here um, there's populist parties that have been elected all over the world and there's a strong tinge of ethnic nationalism to all of it so this rise in populism and ethnic nationalism globally um, really you know it reminds me of the racism of the early 20th century it has huge kind of resonance around that, and other people have observed that. And I just thought it has to be now um, that we look at this again, because even though so many people have written on this in the past, and in fact for 70 years scientists have been debunking this idea that race is anything but a social construct, um, but we don't seem to have got any further along, and the politics is actually going in the other direction. So it was really now. So, you know... Although for me, it has felt personal and important all my life, um, I think for the for global politics, it's important now. One of the things I found super interesting about your book is that, like, you make the argument that this never actually went away, that, like, you know, we have this maybe collective idea that, like, okay, we did this, like, bad race science stuff, and then we kind of realized the error of our ways, and the people today are kind of trying to resurrect it. And you say, like, no, it doesn't need to be resurrected. It's always kind of been there. It's just kind of now finding the right channels into the people who are in power and into these, like, other sort of yeah. fringe groups, mm -hmm. which I thought was really interesting because I, I had that sort of mistaken view that, like, perhaps we had gotten away from it. And in yeah. fact, no, it's it's been there the entire time. Yeah. Did you, like, in, in uncovering these this sort of, these networks that you talk about in the book of like people who are who have been writing about this in these you know journals for each other basically this whole time were you surprised to find that when or did you did you know that going into the book 
Um, it's actually quite an open secret in scientific circles that journals like the Mankind Quarterly exist and that these people are circulating online and at the fringes of academia. Um, so there are very many people who have encountered them and it doesn't take a huge amount of digging uh, to see them see how they operate and often I mean if you're on social media and you've written anything pretty much at all you will have some point encountered one of these people so they are there um, what I try to do is kind of systematically go through the history of it their origins their funding uh, how these networks work it's quite complicated um, and it's far more complex than I've been able to get across in the book because obviously, if I were to name them all, it would just be a, like a telephone directory. So I really had to be uh, selective in the people that I talked about and the networks I was talking about. But it's a very large network. It's very sophisticated. It has been working for many decades. In fact, one of, uh, one of the elements who founded the network in the first place after the Second World War is still alive. He's in his 90s. So out of the Second World War, working with Nazi race scientists, this man is still operating. Um, so these are kind of old, established, well-funded, because there are men of wealth, racist men of wealth, who have funded these networks, um, operating for a long time. And they have been, uh, I mean, unimaginably clever and creative in their approaches to... Um, asserting themselves within uh, not just their, not just building up their own networks, but asserting themselves within the mainstream discourse. And to some extent, they're succeeding. Yeah. I mean, that's the scary part, right? Mm -hmm. It's working. <laughs> not that they're just sort of existing in their little... It, it wouldn't be... It, maybe this isn't true, but it feels that it wouldn't be as scary if they were just existing in their own little network and they weren't influencing yeah. the rest of the world. But in fact, that's not what's happening. They are, you know, finding their ways into the most powerful people you know, and also like uh, these online networks of uh, extremists. Yeah. Um, yeah, I you know that gets to my one question that you kind of talk you talk in the book, and and you mentioned this earlier that like you know for decades scientists have kind of been debunking this idea that race is anything but a social construct, mm. and and you talk in the book about you talked to scientists in the book who sort of have this belief that like you science can help eradicate racism by doing this debunking work that kind of by showing that these differences are meaningless. But I'm curious, do you think that that's true? Because there is this long history of them trying to do this and it has not seemed to work. Do you think it is possible to eradicate racism just via science? No, it isn't. Because these scientific racists are not racist because of the science. It's not as though they've carefully read the scientific evidence and then decided that people are unequal. <laughs> they were racist to begin with. And the science for them is a kind of intellectual prop. So it kind of gives them this intellectual veneer that our racism is not just lazy prejudice. It's not We're not like those thugs out there who are beating up black and Asian people. We are... Um, clever people and we know these facts we have this kind of privileged information that you don't have and um, you uh, people you know mainstream scientists everybody else is kind of laboring under this left-wing conspiracy to promote racial equality whereas we know that racial equality isn't possible because um, because of biology because we know that people are so different so they kind of um, have this arrogant 
uh, veneer that they put on um, in order to pretend that they have an intellectual case to make. Now, you don't need to do very much work to know that they don't have any kind of intellectual case there. And their MO is that you don't find out actually what they're doing. Uh, what they use is rhetoric. And their rhetoric is academic freedom, freedom of speech, diversity of opinion. We should be allowed to say what we want. This might be possible. This may be possible, you know, without ever saying anything outright. Um, but it's, you know, what they're relying on is this pseudoscientific idea that there are some deep, that one, that race is real, which is not borne out by genetics. And secondly, that there are kind of these deep, psychological and cognitive and physical differences between these races, racial groups that makes inequality impossible. Yeah. I mean, what is it like to, you, you interviewed some of these folks, uh, your mm. race realists, as they like to call themselves. I'm, mm. I'm curious just personally for you what it's like to talk to these people, especially as like a minority woman. Like what, I mean, I can't, I feel like I would do a murder. Like I just don't know if I'd be able to do it. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, I, like I said, I've been thinking about these issues for a long time and I've encountered racism in my life for a long time. So this isn't the first time that I'm talking to racists or encountering racists or even experiencing racism. And I've been able to, over that time, get some measure of my emotions around it. You know, as a journalist, you have to be able to interview people who you don't agree with, who... Um, sometimes think and feel the most obnoxious things and listen to them. And I think the value of that is in listening to them, you can start to get some understanding of who they are, why they think the things that they do, but also you get some measure of your own biases and your own understanding of these issues. Um, and I think that's crucial here. And I think that's something I've tried to get across in Superior, that this isn't just about pointing the finger at a group of other people. Um, racism is something that we all have. We all have prejudices and biases um, that are very dear to us, that we have been raised with. And unless we can examine the way that bias operates in our own lives and in our own minds, then we can't really um, get past this kind of politics of hatred that we're in. So in speaking to people who I don't agree with politically or morally or scientifically, um, it is actually, there's actually, you know, I think it's actually very useful and helpful for all of us in trying to get them, trying to understand how human beings work, really. That's fundamentally what it is. Why do we think the things that we do? Why do we believe the things that we do? Why, why is racism still part of society? And it's not just that people are born hateful. Uh, you know, I refuse to believe that that's the case. It's because people have been taught or raised with certain ideas and they have shaped how they think about the world. And that is true of every single scientist. Every scientist has a certain perspective on the world. Um, and these people's perspectives are maybe on the fringes, they might be very extreme and completely debunked or outdated, but they came from somewhere. And I think that was a challenge for me to try and figure out where it, this came from. 
Yeah, you mentioned, you know, this question in the book of like intention and the sort of the politics of the researchers involved. Like if someone is anti-racist, that makes it like more okay in some, they might think that it makes it more okay than someone who's not to ask some of these questions. And that kind of comes up a couple times in the book of like, oh, well, he can't, it's it's okay that he's doing this research because he's anti-racist. And I'm curious if you actually feel like that makes any difference at all. Well, I mean, as I explain in Superior, it's a problematic position to take because it absolves you of any kind of bias then you can then you are basically skipping around out there doing research in the belief that you don't have any bias at all because you're the anti-racist one and as we know that's not the case because we all have biases Um, and this is one of the problems that we see in science that very well-intentioned scientists keep invoking race Um, because they feel that they are able to do so because they are anti-racist, without really interrogating why they're using these categories in the first place. And very often, they're using these categories completely inappropriately. So one of the examples I give in the book is of um, Luigi Luca Cavalli-Sforza, this really famous, seminal um, population geneticist, who, when I interviewed him before he died... um, said to me, uh, described mixed heritage people as hybrids. But he was doing it in a nice way. He was saying, look at the health and vitality <laughs> of hybrids, how how great they are. Look how wrong the racists were to call hybrids, you know, somehow. In the early 20th century, people used to think that if you were mixed race, then you would end up with some kind of genetic deformity or disability, that you would be somehow like uh, even unable to breed. <laughs> we know we obviously know that's not the case um and this was what he was pointing out and you know i think in his mind he was probably thinking i'm be- i'm being really good here i'm being so anti-racist in pointing out this but using the word hybrid that's completely inappropriate it's not just morally inappropriate it's scientifically inappropriate because we are not different breeds we are not so different that you can describe two people from different heritages as being High, you know, mating together, producing hybrids. That's just ridiculous. It's just, you know, it's crazy to think of us in those terms. But the use of that kind of language, I think, betrays one of the problems that we have in science at the moment, which is that very good, you know, left-wing often anti-racist researchers are still plagued by the baggage of the past, and until they. Uh, kind of go back and look at that body of work that they are building on, the language that they use, the uh, frameworks that they use, the way in which they study human difference, then we're just going to keep making the same mistakes. Yeah. Like in, in your interactions with these scientists, like, do you get pushback trying to convince them that they indeed need to like position their work in the con in this context? Like, is there progress being made on that front? There is a lot of resistance. Um, I, uh, when um, Superior came out in the UK, and there was an extract from the, an edited extract published in the New Scientist about exactly this issue about mainstream population genetics still carrying elements of racialized thinking. And there were a couple of population geneticists who got in touch on Twitter and said, why are you pointing fingers at us, essentially? You know, you should be pointing the finger at those racists over there. We're not the problem. Um, You know, you're doing more damage by maligning us when you should be focusing on them. And the point I make in the book and the point I've always made is that we are all the problem. 
You know, some people may be more problematic than others, of course, the scientific racists are a bigger problem, but we all need to think again about how we think about race and how we use it in discourse and in academia. Um, we can't wash our hands of this idea and say that it is somebody else's problem. And I hope, I mean, those scientists who got in touch with me on Twitter have since read my book, and I'm hoping, I haven't heard from them since then, but I'm hoping that they will reflect on this and we can kind of move forward. And in fact, the next stage of my work now, I've been, I've, I took a break from social media for a few weeks because I was getting a lot of um, neo-Nazi uh, racist trolling um, online. I just got back to Twitter this week, but the reason I went back, uh, and it was a very difficult decision because I didn't want to, but the reason I got back is to reach out to people because I've been meeting with academics and journalists who work in this area, like I do, who've been looking at the same issues that I've been looking at, to build a network to counter what we this kind of problem, this problem of pseudoscience that's swirling about especially online, but also in journals and in magazines, this mainstreaming of pseudoscientific ideas around racism and sexism to try and tackle it. Because let me tell you, as you probably know, these guys are sophisticated. They know exactly mm -hmm. what they're doing. They've been doing it for a long time. And we cannot combat them by just watching and calling it out on Twitter. We need something strategic to respond to it. And I'm hoping... Um, I mean, there are very many people around the world who are looking at this, but I'm hoping that with this group of people we can do the same. And, and approaching academics, I think, is a big part of that. Do you have thoughts on like what that strategy might look like? I have some thoughts. Um, I think partly we need to look at the online aspect of it, so how content, racist, pseudoscientific content gets disseminated online and whether there are channels or ways or algorithms or something, technologies to combat how that is done to hold these people to account. I think some of it has to happen at a governmental level. I know it makes people very uncomfortable to think that the government might interfere in content online, but as we know, there are real problems. People are getting radicalized, extremists are getting radicalized online, and um, we need to do something about it. Governments are already looking at it, and I'm hoping the pseudoscientific aspect of the problem will come under that remit. So that they are two ways. But I think also it's just a matter of going out and uh, cataloguing the mistakes that are happening and then speaking to people, engaging with the public and with academics on uh, how to think differently about these things. Yeah, I was going to ask you about sort of the reaction to the book. I know there was a, a sort of pretty terrible review in the terrible publication Quillette and uh, I'm sure that did not help your social media experience at all um, I mean how do you just like personally handle some of that pushback it's it's difficult I mean something publishing Quillette kind of is water off a duck's back because it's Quillette <laughs> but, yeah, but right. it's very difficult <laughs> because then that gets shared online and it kind of I mean what they're trying to do is muddy your reputation ultimately what they want to do is undermine you online and they're able to do that because it's very difficult but for people to know the everyday layperson to know whether what they're reading is a legitimate critique or whether it's just written by someone who I've talked about in the book who is a scientific racist and it's um it's that kind of muddying of content online which is part of the problem here um and that's one of the things I think we need to 
look at and think about is where are we getting our information from? There is a lot of fake news, a lot of pseudoscience swirling about online, um, and this and involved in that are personal attacks on people like me and many others. You know, I, the abuse I've had is just a drop in the ocean compared to the kind of abuse that other people, other scientists have had who uh, work in this area who are more high profile. So I think we need to... Um, I think, you know, I'm trying really hard to have a thick skin about these things. And I do, I mean, I block and mute a lot uh, very liberally. <laughs> mm -hmm. So that makes a huge difference. But um, I'm very lucky to have a lot of supporters out there. And especially because Inferior came out two years ago, I have a lot of readers who are kind of backing um, the kind of things that I support and the position that I take. And that makes a huge difference. It means that this kind of content gets reported. Um and, and that's important. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, like, you know, most of the listeners to plot this, you know, flash forward into this sort of bonus podcast that this goes on. They're not they're not necessarily scientists who can kind of do the the work we talked about earlier. where like, you know, really being honest about where certain things come from and engaging in that academic literature. And one thing that I struggle with when I see these sorts of sort of scientific racist arguments online is that it's a sort of similar feeling I have sometimes when you encounter people who are like climate deniers where they will like cite studies at you. And it's hard to sometimes if you don't know the literature back and front, it's hard to it feels to me sometimes hard to argue with them aside from being like, I just don't think this probably means what you think it means. Like it's a lot of work yeah. to go through and look at the studies, you know, and like and do all that stuff. And for like, you know, I have uh, like lots of experience reading studies and my background is in genetics. So I can for this kind of stuff usually go in and be like, well, this doesn't say at all what you're saying it says. Mm -hmm. But for some like for people who maybe don't have that kind of either experience or just like time because that's very time intensive to do mm -hmm. stuff like that. Do you have strategies or suggestions for like how to push back at someone who you might meet who might be like sort of saying some of these things like what should like you know quote unquote regular people do yeah. well I guess that's why I wrote my books because there are there is no kind of simple one study that you can point someone to um, that will suddenly you know disabuse them of their racism or sexism like I said before people are racist and sexist because they're racist and sexist and it's not because they read one paper and that suddenly convinced them that women are stupider than men or that you know uh, certain groups of people have a different IQ to other groups of people their prejudices come first and um, I think that's where we need to engage people is understanding where their prejudices come from and asking them and challenging them on why why they want to believe the things that they believe because if they've really done a faithful examination of the evidence, whether you're a climate, climate change denier or a flat earther or like a scientific racist, if you've really looked at the evidence properly and then felt the need to go online and then tell people about it, then you would know that the evidence is not on your side. The fact is they have cherry-picked what they wanted and then they're trying to hit people over the head with it. So... In that sense, they're not really open to debate, right? Because if they were, then they would have been convinced already mm. because the overwhelming evidence is not on their side. So I think it's almost pointless then to argue with them. I wonder if perhaps 
the better thing to do is just marginalize these ideas, you know, not to give them any kind of oxygen at all online or in papers or, you know, when we're sharing social media stuff, to just not let people know about it because then it loses prominence and it doesn't appear in people's line of sight. Now, I understand that's complicated because the Internet, in some ways, we're all inside our own echo chambers um, and that just perpetuates the echo chamber. But... Um, how we get out of that problem is, I, I think, one of the big issues that we have to face because I think the, politi the political age that we're in speaks to that problem and we really, that's what we really need to counteract. Right, right. It, they want you to try to engage them in this sort of science question even though they don't actually care about the science because then it makes it seem like a legitimate debate when yeah. in fact it's not. Yeah, and they want they want you to start sending them papers and debating with them because then they feel that they they have a leg to stand on, you know, that they are scholars just like you, that they are just as legitimate as any other person thinking, any other intellectual thinking about these issues, when in fact they're on the far far margins of this debate. You know, they're so, they're not even in the debate in the mainstream scientific debate. Um, and that's, I think, how they need to be treated, as though they honestly don't exist in the debate. Um, but again, I don't, you know, I struggle with this because I don't know. One, we don't know how big these elements are, and it, particularly with these kind of pseudoscientific races, they're quite large in number, I think. Um, how do we stop people from falling prey to that kind of pseudoscience? That's a big challenge, I think. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, just now when we were talking and you talk a lot about in a lot in the book about how like, you know, we all kind of even if we know that there's no biological explanation for race, like many people still feel connected. Like there must be some difference. Like, you know, I can like my family has this history. You know, we come from this place. You have these DNA tests that are telling you like where you come from. And this is like an important element of our cultural heritage. And we sort of cling to this idea that like maybe there is a difference. Like, maybe you know, it, like it makes some sort of like sense because of what we've been taught mm -hmm. throughout our lives. I wonder like, you know, beyond the question of what science can or can't convince us of, like, is that ever going to go away? Is that a po is it possible to like not have people not feel that way ever? Uh, to not think about race, you mean? Yeah, um, or not feel as though like I can see like there seem to be visual differences. Like what is that? To ask that question, like you know? Um, I think it is possible. Um, whether it's going to happen or not, I don't know. Because we have to remember that however meaningless race is a, as a biological category, it has huge meaning politically and socially. Right. And um, the fact that we have made these um, categories real through politics um, and that racism and discrimination are so important to our lives, they affect how we live. They affect us viscerally. You know, in the United States, if you're a black American... Um, your life expectancy is lower on average. Um, you know, your very body is affected by these issues. Um, so I don't know if it's it's possible to completely tear ourselves away from that because we don't have justice yet. We don't have reparations. We don't have any kind of redress for all the mistakes and wrongs, the huge, enormous wrongs that happened in the past with slavery and colonialism and genocide. We haven't really atoned for any of that. And while in um, in our minds uh, 
that is still there, that kind of injustice is still looming large, and in our lives it's still looming large, then we can't really move beyond the categories. We need the categories in order to assert our um, claim for justice. You know, this is what identity politics is. It's about saying, this is the identity you've given me, and this is the basis upon which you've oppressed me. Now fix it. Now we have to fix it. And that fixing hasn't been done yet. Um, I don't know if it ever will be. Right. Yeah. Um, The last question I wanted to ask you is, I mean, you mentioned that you, one of the next things you're working on is this sort of network and trying to figure out if there's ways to maybe fight fire with fire or figure out how to kind of work against some of these, these sort of mechanizations of, of scientific racism. Um, but is there another book on the horizon? Are do you going to continue with the inferior superior blank <laughs> naming convention? <laughs> like, do you have, do you have another project, uh, that you're looking at? Um, I'm thinking about things, but to be honest, I need to take a break. Um, my son was, um, <laughs> like one or two when I started working on inferior and he's six now and he's you know even though I am as much of a hands-on parent as I can be uh, there have been very many weekends and evenings that he's not had me around so I'm kind of just focusing on my family a bit and just regrouping because it's been a really busy uh four or five years and um and then I think next year I might think about starting another project but for now I just want to kind of create conversations and work with people in these areas to move things forward. And I'm really hoping that, um, I mean, I put on out a call on Twitter today. I've had, I've already got a team of people that I'm working with, but I'm hoping that more people come forward and we get the best possible minds who are experts in these areas uh, thinking about this and tackling this. Yeah. Well, I hope it works because <laughs> something has to happen because, yeah, it's not, not great out there. It's, um, yeah, it's not. We need to do something. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us, um, for answering these questions, for writing the book. And I, I loved Inferior as well. So I'm a big fan. <laughs> thank you. I'm so grateful. That means a lot. Okay, that was my interview with Angela. I think she has the loveliest voice. Did you notice? She's got such a great voice. It's she should she should have a podcast. <laughs> um, so um, I want to just say a couple of really quick things about the Flash Forward podcast. Uh, updates: what I'm doing, what's going on in between these little mini seasons. Um, updates on just other stuff. Um, so the first thing I'll say is that this bonus podcast um, has always kind of been a little bit of an experiment and it's kind of been evolving over time as I've been doing it. It's relatively new. It's a relatively new thing that patrons get. So I'm still kind of figuring out what to do with it. Um, so far, it's been used mostly for, you know, things that I cut from the episode so I can play you tape and play you things that I didn't include in the episode. And you can kind of hear what sort of hit the cutting room floor. And that's going to still continue on. The other thing I'm going to add to these bonus podcast episodes is um, once an episode, I'm just going to do a little update on something that is in the news now that is relevant to a past episode of Flash Forward. One thing that I've kind of noticed is that, you know, Flash Forward has almost 100 episodes now. In fact, we are going to hit episode 100 in November of this year, which I'm very excited about. Um, that's very cool. Um, but because there are now so many episodes often, and you know, we, I started the show four years ago, um, things have changed and there's all sorts of news about the various topics we've talked about. You know, In the first season of the show, we did all sorts of futures that are actually kind of in the news now. 
And I often find that like I want a way to kind of talk about how those past episodes sort of are in conversation with today's news. And I don't have a great way to do that or a great way to kind of resurface those episodes. And so I thought I'd start with this bonus podcast where for every bonus episode, I'm going to just pick one thing that's in the news and kind of talk about how it connects to an earlier episode that we did probably in seasons one or two, maybe season three, um, things that have been like years ago now that you maybe didn't listen to or have forgotten since. Um, And we can kind of talk a little bit about um, what I got right, what I got wrong, (laughs) how the story has changed since I lasted the episode. I had thought about doing a whole mini season of just like revisiting episodes from the past and kind of redoing them. So like facial recognition, for example, is something that has changed a ton since four years ago when I did that first episode. And I might do a facial recognition episode in the upcoming mini season um, about crime that I'm going to talk about in a second. Um, But there are a couple of other things that I thought like, oh, maybe maybe it's worth doing a mini season that's all just revisiting old episodes. But I decided not to do that because I don't want people to think that, A, I'm like phoning it in. Um, B, advertisers don't really like that because they feel like some people won't listen if it's not fully, if they think it's not fully new content, Um, even though I would like redo most of it and it would just be kind of like a a throwback or a callback to the older episodes. Um, And also, yeah, I just wanted to make sure that everything felt new and that it didn't feel like I was just redoing old episodes, especially all four in a row or five in a row with these mini seasons. Um, I mentioned in the recent sort of email update to patrons that one of the cons of doing these mini seasons is that if someone doesn't like the topic they'll just skip all five episodes which is not great Um, and so if someone doesn't like this idea of redoing and revisiting these episodes I'll just skip them all which is kind of a bummer. So I decided not to do a mini season of sort of like what I in my head have been calling back to the future um, segments where I sort of revisit old topics or old futures that we've gone to on the show. But I am going to kind of start talking about them one um, in each of these little bonus episodes. So you'll have that in the next one. Um, that's sort of a thing I'm going to add to the bonus episode. I'm also going to add one other thing. You know, at the end of every episode, I I say a secret, and I'm also going to say what I'm reading. So I'm currently reading some books, and I'll tell you what they are in a second. Um, the last update that I have for you is that I've picked the theme of the mini season for the next mini season for Flash Forward. That launches on August 13th. So if you don't want to know the topic of the mini season, I kind of already gave it away. But if you don't want to know, cover your ears now. Okay, it's crime. I'm going to do crime, five episodes about crime in the future. And um, some people have expressed their dislike of the true crime genre. And I want to say that I, too, in fact, hate true crime. Um, And I find that a lot of the tropes in true crime podcasting are really gross and exploitive. And so I I, I don't want to do that. Um, But I do think there are interesting things to say about the ways in which we might criminalize or decriminalize certain things in the future, the ways in which sort of power dynamics interact with those things. You know, how do we think about law and justice and sort of restitution and all that stuff in the future? So I am hoping, (laughs) I'm hoping that I do not fall into the traps of some of the true crime stuff that um, sometimes can be, I think, in my opinion, a little bit slimy. Um, I know some people love true crime. Um, In fact, podcaster, podcast audience seem to just like go head over heels for true crime. So um, I'm hoping to kind of thread the needle, like make something that's true crime that lots of people will be interested in because it's true crime, but not sort of fall into maybe some of the ethical traps that true crime can sometimes, uh, I think, exhibit. So um, we'll see 
see if I can do that. But I have a whole long list of potential topics, potential episodes that I'm actually whittling through this week. And by the end of this week on Friday on my calendar, it says a big red box, which means it's a deadline that I need to have all five episodes picked, all the topics for all five episodes picked um, at the end of this week. So that is my plan for the rest of this week. That's one of the big tasks on my list for the week. Um, Okay. That is it for this bonus episode, except for the last two things, which I will do now on every bonus episode, which are A, tell you what I'm reading, and B, tell you a secret. So what am I reading? I am currently reading a couple of um, old historical books about the Irish potato famine for a project that I can't talk about yet, but that is really interesting, I think, personally. Um, And, you know, the Irish potato famine, like, I don't know. I had heard about it. I knew like the general gist of it, but I didn't really know exactly kind of how it went down and all sort of historical nitty gritty details, um, which turns out are like really depressing, but also fascinating. So I'm reading a couple of books. One of them is called The Graves Are Walking, The Great Famine and the Saga of the Irish People. And that is by John Kelly. Um, I'm also reading a book called The Great Irish Potato Famine, very straightforward title, um, by James S. Donnelly Jr. And I am reading a book that is old and I'm from the library, so it doesn't have the name of it on the cover, so I'm going to open it. It's called The Great Hunger by Cecil Woodham Smith. Um, And that is really just like a history of Ireland from 1845 to 1849. Um, And they're just like full of really fascinating specific historical details about this thing that happened that um, I didn't know that much about until I started reading these books. Um, and so uh, I, I will be able to tell you a little more about like why I'm reading these books in the future soon in another bonus podcast. But for now, I can't actually tell you why I've got suddenly gotten deep in reading about the great Irish potato famine. But um, that is what I'm reading right now. The last thing I'll do is tell you a secret. Okay, so I mentioned in a past episode that I took a pottery class or like a ceramics class um, and I have gotten like very into it. I now am a member at a studio near my house and I go like two to three times a week and I make very, very mediocre ceramics items Um, and I like love it. It's been the best. Uh, I did not have a hobby in many ways until then. And the nice thing about ceramics is that, A, it's a thing that I can be bad at and it doesn't matter. Like, I don't feel any need to like work really hard and get really good and like open an Etsy store or like anything like that. I can just do it. And like most of the stuff I make looks pretty bad like I'm definitely at the level of when your kid brings home an ashtray and you're like oh it's so beautiful and you put it on your shelf and it's like the very ugly but you still have it because you love your kid that's me I'm your kid um except I'm not your kid but the quality of the item that they that I'm bringing home is about about there um but it's super fun I'm having a great time I'm learning a lot about like how to do this stuff and crucially this is the key part when you are doing ceramics your hands are kind of covered in clay and you can't touch your phone so I can't just like waste endless amounts of time on my phone I like have to unplug I have to like do something else and I don't even actually listen to podcasts when I do ceramic stuff I listen to music um, just to kind of truly like not be thinking about work and not be trying to like maximize my you know capitalistic work output um and it's great so I highly recommend ceramics if you have a studio near you or a class near you and you are looking for something that is like feels good you know you can use your hands you can build something functional that you can bring home 
I recommend it. Ceramics is great. It's been so fun. Um, if you want to like see things that I am making uh, in my ceramics uh, life, you can do that. Um, I have a I post about it on Instagram a lot. Um, people have said very nice things and have like been like, oh, like. I, I'll pay for shipping if you ship this thing to me. And that's very, very kind. Um, I'm trying to be as low key and as like low input into this hobby as possible. So I am not going to do any of those things. I will not be selling anything or shipping anything. Um, but it's been so fun and I highly recommend finding yourself like a hobby where your hands are dirty so you can't be on your phone. <laughs> it's definitely changed my life for the better in the last like couple months. So that is all that I have for you today. Uh, and I will talk to you all again in August, August 13th. In fact, you might hear from me one more time before then because we are reading um, Nigerians in Space this month for the book club. And I'm going to interview the author, Deji Bryce Olukoten, uh the first week of August. So you may actually hear another bonus episode before you hear a full episode of Flash Forward, um, TBD on the exact scheduling for that. But um, either way, you will hear from me early August. And I hope you're having a lovely day and you're not missing Flash Forward too much. You can always go back and listen to the back catalog. And if you have ideas for crime futures that you want me to think about, uh, send me an email. You know how to get me. I'm at info at flashforwardpod.com. Or you can just send me a message through Patreon. I really appreciate it. Oh, and last thing, if you are hearing this and you're like, wait a minute, a book club? I want to be in the book club. Uh, you should totally join us. It's super fun. We, there's a Slack that you can be in that we t discuss the books in and we kind of also talk about like the podcast and other things. Um, all you have to do is up your pledge from $5 an episode to $7 an episode, just an extra $2 an episode and you can get access to the book club. Um, and it's very fun and people are very nice. Everyone's lovely. Uh, and we talk about books. So I don't know what more you could ask for. So if you are tempted, I highly uh, recommend it. Obviously I'm biased because I think it's good and it's helpful for the show. Um, so yeah, so thank you everybody who is new to donating to Flash Forward. All of you who are new patrons. Hello. Thank you so much. Thank you again to everybody who has been around for a long time um you know the show could literally not exist without you there are still no ads sold on the next mini season woohoo um but i'm working on it i'm working very hard on it and um without patreon support like truly the show would die and you would not be even hearing this bonus podcast so um i can't thank you enough okay i will stop rambling now this is what happens when i don't have a script i just go on and on and on and on forever uh okay have a great monday goodbye